Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the impeachment story through the lens of the last six years, a little more, between Russia and Ukraine, from the annexation of Crimea to U.S. election tampering and all that followed. So before we get started, I'm going to do my best to set the scene here a little bit. First of all, you need to know that Ukraine is economically, well, or was economically vital to the Soviet Union. It used to be part of the Soviet Union. It was sort of the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and it lies physically, strategically located between Europe and Russia. And so it is still important today because oil pipelines run from Russia through Ukraine into Europe, and oil is the source of Russia's geopolitical power right now. So Ukraine, as part of that system, is still vital. Now, uh, eastern U Ukraine, which is physically closer to Russia, as well as Crimea, which sort of hangs off the southern side, those regions are generally more pro-Russia. The people who live there are actually more pro-Russia, whereas the uh, areas in western Ukraine are generally more pro-Europe, just the sentiments of the people who live in those areas. I mean, Americans should have some familiarity with politics breaking down regionally like that. So the last you know decade or more has been a tumultuous time for Ukraine. They've sort of teeter-tottered between pro-Europe and pro-Russia presidents. Uh, one pro-democracy slash pro-Europe uh, candidate was poisoned. That was a pretty big story. He nearly died. Like, no one can figure out why he didn't die. Uh, and they ended up having a, a do-over election, and he won that election. And so it was seen as this big... Uh, you know, revolution moment for Ukraine. Meanwhile, corruption has been consistent throughout. The current president was elected on a anti-corruption platform and, and got, you know, much more of the, the vote than, you know, anyone before him and, you know, in recent memory. If you want to learn more about Ukraine, I've I've watched a few documentaries on it. The one I would recommend is called Ukraine from Democracy to Chaos. And it came out several years ago, so it actually predates the Crimea annexation and all of that, but it's good for getting the backstory that leads to the more recent stuff. You do have to be careful, though. Other documentaries I've seen have, have turned out to be really sort of bizarro world propaganda pieces and I, you know, I think, I think that I was able to figure out that they were propaganda pieces because I'm pretty media savvy and, and, you know, it was just setting off my alarm bells, you know, my, my guard was up, but I can, I can certainly imagine, you know, people without those sort of instincts being pulled into any number of, uh, strange storylines about, about Ukraine. So. All of this is to say that it's this complicated power game that is the context for the 2014 Russian annexation of Crimea. This was the first part of the story that really broke through to American audiences because it was, I think, the most prominent annexation by force since World War II. I don't think it, it wasn't the first, but it, it was a very prominent uh, display of force to annex you know, land from one country to another. And in reaction, 
Russia was suspended from the G8 and sanctions were placed on them, costing them billions in lost oil revenue. Oil, as I said, being the source of their power, so that's a really big deal, something Russia very, very much wants to have overturned. And back in 2014, since this annexation was a major geopolitical story happening during the Obama administration, it gave Republicans an opportunity to say that the whole thing was Obama's fault, of course. But in doing so, they also started to tip their hand a little bit as to how they felt about Vladimir Putin. And so have a listen to this clip. I, I just went back out of curiosity and listened to my 2014 episode on Ukraine, and I heard this clip from All In With Chris Hayes. Have you noticed the way certain prominent conservatives have been talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin? There's something a little off about it. Sure, they condemn him and they see him as a foe, the United States' biggest geopolitical foe. In fact, they're talking about a new Cold War. But underneath that condemnation, there's something, I can't quite put my finger on it, something that sounds oddly like admiration. Putin decides what he wants to do, and he does it in half a day, right? He, went, he decided he had to go to their parliament. He went to their parliament. He got permission in 15 minutes. He right. makes a decision, and he executes it quickly. Then everybody reacts. That's what you call a leader. President Obama, you've got to think about it. He's got to go over it again. He's got to talk to more people about it. They we're going through the whole, like, Syria thing again, right? That's what you call a leader. It's strange. It almost sounds as if they would make the Obama-Putin trade if they had a world leader's fantasy team. Look it. People are looking at Putin as one who wrestles bears and drills for oil. They look at our president as one who wears mom jeans and equivocates and bloviates. We are not exercising that peace through strength that only can be brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. There's a reason we don't play a lot of Sarah Palin's analysis on the show. But to listen to Senator John McCain today, it's almost as if President Obama is too weak to even recognize the strength and the provocation of a president, the caliber of Vladimir Putin. This president does not understand Vladimir Putin. He does not understand his ambitions. He does not understand that Vladimir Putin is an old KGB colonel bent on restoration of the Soviet, of the Russian Empire. Now, the ideological lines here don't break down in any kind of clear way. I mean, there are people on both sides of the spectrum, liberal, conservative, reactionaries and radicals, who said everything from Putin is being unfairly vilified and misunderstood to Putin is a monster. Those three examples I just played, though, they suggest an understanding of foreign policy and geopolitics in which strength is the supreme virtue and weakness is the supreme vice. And the winner is the one who exhibits the most strength. That framework is one Vladimir Putin seems to have. And it's a framework that too many prominent people on the right seem to share. So here we are five years later, and now we have that kind of authoritarian-minded president, but it came along with a very strong affinity for Russia itself, as we've witnessed. So in the last several years, GOP support for Ukraine against Russia hasn't waned. Supporting Ukraine has famously been one of the most bipartisan issues in Congress. But Trump, as always, is in a completely different camp, and he's subverting the old paradigms. Now, if you listen to Trump supporting far-right-wing 
talk about the impeachment, as I have done a little bit, you will hear, hear them argue that this whole story is just a policy disagreement. Supporting Ukraine was a bipartisan issue supported by both parties and all of the career diplomats who they would refer to as the deep state. And now Trump has come in with different priorities, which as president, it is his right to do. So he wants to be friendlier to Russia, obviously, and focus his antagonism on China, which the right sees as a greater threat to U.S. global dominance than Russia. So those policy differences may very well be true, but it's still a long way from it being a good reason to use the power the U.S. has over Ukraine during this very precarious time in their history to extort personal political favors, which is, of course, what happened. So now we're going to start with one more sort of overview in the wake of annexation of Crimea, and then go from there. Clips today come from Impeachment Explained, Rubicon, On the Media, The Washington Post, The Brian Lehrer Show, and The Daily DC Impeachment Watch. So let's begin with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What What is the context in which that happened? Well, you could go a little bit back and say in 2008, Russia invaded Georgia already. So we already knew that they had a little problem recognizing and respecting borders. But in the case of Ukraine, when they invaded and seized Crimea and said it was going to be theirs, that was kind of a whole new thing. That was the first time since World War II that a country had done that, basically used military force to change the borders. I mean, it was like Hitler annexing, you know, Austria or the Sudetenland. So basically now we had a situation where the Russians had declared war on their neighbor, seized their territory. The international community, you know, all the way to the UN, let's not forget, condemned it. And to this day, they do not recognize what Russia did. At the same time, Russia decided that wasn't enough. They actually wanted to destabilize Ukraine more and maybe take all of eastern Ukraine. They started fomenting uprisings using proxies. And some of it stuck. Some of it didn't work. Um, the local officials stepped in and put and squashed these efforts. But some of them worked. And so we have an ongoing war. War right now in Ukraine. It's been going on for five years and 13,000 people have died so far. I think that part would be surprising to people. To the extent there's a narrative that has been propagated in America about Russia's invasion of Crimea, it's that it was this strange, remarkable, almost nonviolent invasion. Like one day they just showed up there and they had it. But that's not quite been true and certainly has not been the, the, the story since then. Yeah. I mean, the backdrop, you know, you, some of the listeners might say, well, why did they do this? And it basically has to do with wanting to control Ukraine. So when they're bad guy, you know, when they're sorry, when they're crony, so we consider him a bad guy. But when Yanukovych, the guy who is the Russian crony, essentially fled Ukraine for a whole host of reasons we can get into if you want, um, the Russians got alarmed and realized, oh, my God, our guy that helps us, like, keep influence over Ukraine just left. You know, he just got scared and left. And so we now need to do something about that, meaning we need to make sure we have some control over Ukraine now and in the future. And from a military perspective, they did want to have Crimea. It is, it is a strategic area where there are a lot of ports and bases. So there was in the Kremlin, I guess, a fear that they might, if they lose influence over Ukraine, they might get booted out of, meaning their military might get booted out of Crimea. So that was initially why he went in to take it. But 
everything he did from that moment forward, meaning Putin, was aimed at trying to reestablish political control over Ukraine. And that's still the game he's playing right now. He doesn't want Ukraine to be a democracy. That's why Bill Taylor's testimony was very clear that this is a fight between Democrats and autocrats. We're supposed to be the Democrats and the Kremlin folks are the autocrats. So I want to pause on something you just said about Crimea. To the extent that Americans think about Ukraine, I don't think they think about it very much. But Russia clearly considers it geopolitically central. Um, Bill Taylor and his testimony and some of the other uh, diplomats we've been hearing from make the argument that it is very important to America's geopolitical objectives, too. Like, why, why is Ukraine important to all these world powers. Well, first of all, for Russia, I'll just say, you're right. Historically, they've always felt that Ukraine was the little brother. It was sort of um, attached to Russia. It's also very important from the perspective of maintaining the kleptocracy. The whole economy in Russia basically thrives off of this corruption. And a lot of it a lot evolves around the energy industry. Ukraine is a big part of that because pipelines going through Ukraine, providing natural gas to the rest of Europe. So part of it has to do with Russia wanting to maintain that kleptocracy, kleptocratic control over Ukraine and a little bit of the history, right? But on the Western side and on the side of the Ukrainian people now over time, increasingly, we support the right of the Ukrainian people to determine their association. Do they want to be closer to Russia or do they want to be closer? to the West. And in 2014, the, the president of Ukraine was wavering. He was kind of playing a little game between us and Russia, taking some loans from Russia and then trying to uh, get an association agreement with the European Union and hoping to get some kind of favorable economic benefits there. And he made the Ukrainian people, especially the youth, think maybe Ukraine was on the cusp of creating an association agreement with the European Union, which, again, is very much what the young Ukrainians wanted. They've looked at Poland next door, which used to be their poor brother, their poor neighbor. And Poland and the Poles are far richer than you than the Ukrainians today. I mean, that's the best way to get people worked up when they see their neighbor doing better. So that's part of it. And then, of course, we said, look, we're not going to interfere and help Russia. I mean, of course, we're going to help the Democrats who want to be democracies. We're going to help Ukraine with reform, reform the corruption, which is at the base of the kleptocracy, and help them become more democratic. So you're serving in the Obama administration when Russia invades Crimea. What does the Obama administration do? Well, it did happen, as you said, very quickly. The Russian military had learned their lessons from that invasion I mentioned earlier in Georgia, because that wasn't flawless from a military perspective. So what we learned when we watched Crimea was, whoa, those guys actually put together a plan. They must have had this planned and they must have rehearsed before they actually executed it because it happened so fast. So we didn't really have a chance to do anything like as it was happening, right? Um, once they were in Crimea and they had surrounded all the Ukrainian military facilities, as I wrote in an op piece I had in the Washington Post recently, you know, we realized there would be a bloodbath if the Ukrainian military there tried to fight the Russians to try to, you know, keep Crimea for Ukraine. So we realized quickly that Crimea was probably, at least for the near term, gone. Again, the international community, the United States continues to back Ukraine's legitimate, you know, possession of Crimea. But for the time being, we realized, okay, we'd have to just kind of back away from Crimea politically. And then it was all about trying to help the the Ukrainians fight 
the war that was started by the Russians in the eastern area in, in what's called the Donbass region. And so we provided military assistance, economic assistance. Diplomatically, we spoke out again, as I mentioned, clearly in favor of the Ukrainians. All of this was done to try to deter the Russians from trying to take any more territory from Ukraine. And then again, to help the Ukrainians get economically stronger so that they could also fight the Russians militarily, economically and politically. Um, So for a while now, I've thought that the best way to kind of place the Ukraine scandal in the wider constellation of Trump's corruption is to just try to answer the question, how did the Ukraine scandal start? Uh, Because when I try to pinpoint an origin, I realize that the dots actually extend way into the past. Uh, And it didn't just begin at random in May of this year when Trump had a freak out about about you know, his standing in the election and having to run against Joe Biden. So how is, as you understand it, did the Ukraine scandals start? So I go back to this core question that critics have always asked about Donald Trump, which is, is this guy vulnerable to foreign manipulation? And people ask that question because of the wide array of properties that he owned around the world and the way that his business interests were tangled up in places where uh, you had authoritarian governments who just weren't abiding by the same sorts of standards that that we abided by. And so I think you kind of have to go back and look at the long history of people from the former Soviet Union trying to manipulate Trump in various sorts of ways. And some of the manipulation is is willing and Trump is fully aware of what's happened. A lot of it is subconscious. And I think when you have oligarchs from Russia or Ukraine. They look at Trump and they say, oh, this guy is a totally familiar figure. We understand how his mind works. We understand how he can be, he can be influenced. And so people were using various channels to try to, to sway Donald Trump. And, you know, I think the first time we really started to acutely conceptualize what was happening, I think is with the Manafort scandal where you said this guy came from came from Ukraine he was working for the pro russian party why was he why had he descended on the trump campaign but i i i look all the way through and i see you know i see you have oligarchs uh in ukraine who have constantly been trying to figure out what's the right channel is it the campaign chairman is it the personal lawyer uh, they, you know, they're hiring, uh, Fox News commentators as their lawyers. They're getting columns placed in the Hill by, by columnists who they can pretty well be sure is going to end up in Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And so, um, you, you know, there's, there's also the sense of kind of they know exactly how to rile him up. And so when we look at the Ukraine scandal, you know, the, 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 the narrow question that Adam Schiff is focused on is, was there a quid pro quo? Was he trying to extort the Ukrainians in order to get dirt on his uh, political opponent? But I look at it and I say, if I look at the transcripts and I look at the whole narrative of the scandal, I'd say the president was very actively and successfully manipulated by bad actors in this part of the world who, who were very, very successful in shifting the foreign policy of the United States to suit their aims. I'm glad you put it that way because 
you know, listeners who heard the intro uh, will suspect that I think Paul Manafort is a big part of the origin story of the of the Ukraine scandal. And I definitely believe that. But there are these episodes that don't quite fit the picture, right? Like after uh, after Trump's been elected and Manafort's, you know, no longer in the in the middle of Trump world. There's this story about this Ukraine peace plan, yeah. right, that that makes its way to, to Mike Flynn, who was then the national security advisor. But it doesn't come from Manafort directly. It comes maybe not from Manafort at all. It comes from uh, Michael Cohen and, and Felix Sater, who were, uh, you know, in league with the same sort of shady people that you just described, but on a sort of a different channel. And even I wonder, you know, and I'm pretty pretty thick in all this, like how critical Manafort is to the story. Because if you imagined he like never worked for Trump, um, Trump was still very much in Russia's debt uh, when the election ended. Um, he was singing Putin's praises long before Manafort joined the campaign. He was working on the Moscow Tower project independently of Manafort. And it seems conceivable to me that we were always going to end up here. Because Russia helped Trump win and Russia has leverage over Trump. And so Trump was going to side with the sort of corrupt factions in Ukraine rather than the pro-Western reformers, no matter what. I think that's – I think this would happen absent Paul Manafort because you you have a lot of people in – so I think that the, the – the, actually the crucial thing is the development of the relationship between Ukraine and the United States and I'm just going to – I think this is a foreign policy story in addition to being a corruption story, which is that Russia – there's a revolution in Ukraine in 2014. The pro-Russian government that Paul Manafort works for gets swept out of power. They get replaced by uh, by by a, a kind of more liberal democratic regime, albeit still oligarchic. And the United States starts spending a lot of money protecting Ukraine, and that gives us leverage over Ukraine. And so you have somebody like Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, who's in Ukraine, and all American ambassadors have always wanted Ukraine to behave um, in a less corrupt sort of way. They've always wanted presidents to challenge Ukraine's oligarchic system. But finally, we had all this leverage over the government, and the government starts taking actions to clean itself up. And so um, you've got a lot of oligarchs who are suddenly – very much on the defensive. Paul Manafort's clients were on the defensive. Uh, Rudy Giuliani's kind of new clients uh, and the people that he collaborated with in this this extortion scheme were suddenly on the defensive. And so they needed to find a way to undermine the U.S. embassy in Kiev. And so they see that Donald Trump was a guy who they could manipulate into doing their bidding there. And uh, the way that they they were able to entice Donald Trump to their side was to feed him a lot of bogus conspiracy theories that he bought into because they were um, they all adopted the kind of the memes of Donald Trump. They there were arguments about the deep state. There were arguments about how he was his opponents were manipulating things. There were arguments about how Ukraine was the one manipulating the election, not Russia. Mm-hmm. And so they knew how to they knew how to 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 goad him. They knew his psyche. And um, I think it's these guys who were on the corrupt guys who were on the defensive saw in Donald Trump hope for salvation. I the the you mentioned Marie Ivanovich and I and there was you know a lot of uh, the hearing with her. 
she kept dangling this question. Why did they have to smear me? You know, why did they have to run the smear campaign? Why did Trump have to participate in it? That Adam Schiff did a decent job near the end of the hearing at kind of tying it all together. But, you know, the, if you if you strip away the the kind of conspiracy theories and the cloak and dagger nonsense, you you have this story that these people that you're talking about in Ukraine were proposing a, a basic bargain, like the worst people in Ukraine could keep looting their own country yes. with the blessing of the president. Yeah. And in exchange, they'd subvert the 2020 election for him, mm-hmm. but also – give uh, his cronies business deals, right? Um, And it's a little unclear to me how witting Trump was about that transactional uh, situation that he was in when he was smearing Yovanovitch, when he was sort of trying to consummate the quid pro quo through the middle part of this year. Um, So I hope you could speak to that. But I also wonder to what extent Russia was invested in the shakedown because of those deals that were sort of at stake, right? Like, like if if the re- reformist faction in Ukraine um, uh, gains and sustains power, it it hurts Russians' financial interests. Be- yeah, because of the deals they lose or the 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 looting they would no longer be able to do. Well, you know, I, I think to step back and think about Russian interests this way, it's Russia invade when Russia invades Ukraine. Um, they gain a huge chunk of territory, but they also lose by, by occupying that part of Ukraine. They also lose a lot of their leverage over the Ukrainian system. I mean, for one, you had, you had very pro Russian parties that, um, struggled after the invasion to make a case to other parts, to the Western part of Ukraine. Um, and also, um, just, you know, a lot of their voters were now in occupied territories where they weren't able to vote. And so they they lost they lost uh, political power in Ukraine, and they've been kind of fighting for figuring out how to exercise control over the country when they didn't have a political faction that was sitting in the presidency or sitting near the center of power. And so I think a lot of what they've done is try to find ways to undermine Ukrainian democracy, to undermine pushes to make the country less corrupt. And so they had a strong interest in opposing and in, in, in getting rid of Marie Yovanovitch as well, because they don't want the country to take the steps right. that she was pushing for. And a lot of what she was pushing for were actions that would damage a lot of key Kremlin allies within Ukraine. When she goes after uh, a lot of these oligarchs, she's going after people who were handmaidens of the Kremlin to begin with. So I'd say let's never lose track of the underlying geopolitics of Ukraine because that's there in the scandal as well. But how witting was Trump about that aspect of it? Because obviously he wanted help in the election and he thinks about all of this stuff mainly in terms of his own self-interest. Yeah. But there's a lot of money at stake too. You know, there's money that that I don't so this is a great question, something that's intrigued me, which is um so you have Rudy Giuliani's guys going to Kiev in in Rudy Giuliani himself in in you know uh uh messing around in Ukraine for a long period of time and you've Rick Perry's people in Ukraine messing around trying to get various energy deals and who was ultimately 
trying to get rich off of those energy deals? Whose interests did those actually serve? I think Gordon Sondland talked about, and this comes up in the hearings and other places, the, this, this Ukrainian natural state, the Ukrainian state natural gas company, Nafta Gas, mm-hmm. was something that uh, I think Sondland said was mentioned at almost every meeting with the president. And that was something that jumped out at me because Nafta Gas, while extremely important for Ukraine and, you know, the, the energy politics of Ukraine are extremely important for Western Europe and uh, for our our sense of 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 how of, of of security for for that part of the world, it's not really something that you would expect Donald Trump to be tracking or discussing. And uh, you know, at the core of what Giuliani's guys, one of the things that Giuliani's guys were doing when they were in Ukraine was trying to fire the reformist who had taken over the state natural ga- gas company and turned it into a transparent, non-corrupt entity. They were trying to transform the supervisory board that was keeping that natural gas company non-corrupt. So why why were Giuliani's men trying to destroy this incredible accomplishment of U.S. foreign policy? Because we were the ones who made that – we pushed really hard to make NAFTA gas non-corrupt. Why were they trying to undermine that? Who was trying to get – rich off of that? And how how much was Donald Trump aware of that? I have no idea. Um, but, but like I said, the fact that it was discussed so often is something that triggers my spidey sense. I mean, it, I would I would even buy that, like, Trump must have known there was some shady side dealings because, like, why else was Rudy working for him for free, right? The, the, the fact that there was some, you know... Uh, there were other people like wetting their beaks around yeah, this question yeah. of helping Trump win re-election. Um, might just be it. Like, and he doesn't take any any particular interest in any specific Ukrainian firm or or sector. Yeah, yeah I buy that. Um, but I guess uh, well, you know one one parallel. Uh-huh. I, I, one thing I keep thinking about is is to go back to Paul Manafort. So yeah. Paul Manafort, like Rudy Giuliani, works for the president for free. And what was Paul Manafort's game plan? He wanted to become the most powerful man in Washington who wasn't working for the administration, who could leverage the the sense of proximity to power in order to enrich himself, in order to get deals done. And I think Giuliani is kind of the criminal justice version of that. He's working for free. Um, he's leveraging his proximity with Trump to get all sorts of dubious clients around the world. Sometimes he goes into the Justice Department and pleads their case if they're if they're in trouble. Um, you know, sometimes people just want um, there's kind of a sense of 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 cleanliness that comes with uh, being associated with Rudy Giuliani. But it, it's he's he he's basically succeeded where Paul Manafort uh dreamed of succeeding well for now for now <laughs> he's got some he's got some legal trouble just like paul manafort ended up having. Well, yeah we, we have we have we have absolutely no idea how much Rudy, money rudy giuliani has made off of the trump presidency we really don't have a very comprehensive sense of his client list and therefore we have only limited knowledge about the damage that giuliani has done this past couple of years Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, these super comfortable socks that won't surprise you to hear make a great gift. 
I've been enjoying my Bombas socks for years now, and it's no secret why. They are super soft because they're made from the softest cotton in the world, plus they have extra cushioning for extra comfort. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that feels like a nice hug for your foot, and they're smooth across the top, so no more annoying toe seams. But what really seals the deal is that Bombas has a philanthropic mission designed to fill a real need. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters and founded Bombas to help. So for every pair they sell, they give a pair to someone in need. That's why Bombas is the gift that even the person who seems impossible to shop for will love. Go to bombas.com slash left today to get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash left bombas dot com slash left So now I think I want to bring the pieces together because the reason I've tried to focus us a bit in this conversation on on Russia too is that we keep talking about what is happening in Ukraine as a as a Ukraine America question. But it's a Ukraine-America-Russia question that the the leverage Donald Trump had over Ukraine was not just aid in the way we think of aid, but military aid to a country that is currently facing an ongoing invasion, fomenting of uprisings, et cetera, where people are actually dying from Russia. Like you're not this isn't just like aid that would be nice to have. But America is backing up Ukraine against Russia. And in the absence of American support. Ukraine really could fall to Russia. Right, right, That's exactly. That's a big context um, that I think both is not getting all that well reported, but also just given the role Russia played in the whole Mueller affair, right, that that was all about Russia. I think the fact that this is in many ways a continuation of Russia's role in, in American yes, elections yes. Um, just is something that is underappreciated. Yes, because you have to wonder who put it in Rudy Giuliani's ear that somehow Ukraine was responsible maybe for 2016, that there was maybe a server somehow, this kind of crazy idea that they cooked up, that there was some server that the that the attack on the U.S. elections actually came from Ukraine, not from Russia, you know, and then again, to to decide to make a big deal about something Hunter Biden did in Ukraine as opposed to in some other country, right? So I think that it is absolutely as you said, an issue of really Russia versus the United States with Ukraine in the middle. And up until recently, what we found out up until this Giuliani business, the United States was firmly on the side of Ukraine. (laughs) But this Giuliani effort was an effort to basically pull the United States indirectly closer to Russia on the issue because we were going to, Giuliani wanted to dirty up not just Biden's reputation, but Ukraine's reputation. And that would leave the United States free to say, oh, the Ukrainians, they're dirty. They attacked us. You know, let's, let's drop the sanctions on Russia and bingo. That's exactly what Putin's been seeking from Trump all along. But this is the the very strange thing about the story. And I'm sorry for people who, after the Mueller report, like wanted an end to <laughs> yeah. like, Russia yeah, well. machinations dis- discussions. But this is a weird enough story that I think it's worth at least considering that there are weird things going on in it. If you read the testimony from Bill Taylor, hear the reporting on Fiona Hill, just like listen to what anybody in the U.S. national security and state establishments were saying – their whole interest in this was that they believed it was a, an important part of U.S. foreign policy to back up Ukraine. And it seems that the central thing that happened here, even if you just take the conspiracy theories outside of it, is that 
Donald Trump did not think it was an important American interest that the U.S. back up Ukraine against Russia. Donald Trump didn't care about backing up Ukraine against Russia. And so military aid to Ukraine was a chip that he was happy to to, to use against Ukraine and to some degree against his own administration uh, as a way to enlist career civil servants in his scheme here. But again, because he didn't care about this thing that for any other U.S. president of any party, I think would have been thought of as an important foreign policy objective that we don't just let um, Russia take over Ukraine. Yeah. And the reason we don't do it, Ezra, is because you have to have a basic understanding of international dynamics, a little bit of knowledge about history, certainly World War One to World War Two and beyond. Right. Because if we were to say, ah, just let him have Ukraine. Right. And some people have argued that Henry Kissinger has said, make Ukraine a buffer zone, make it neutral. No, no NATO, no nothing, you know. Then we will have said, oh, well, maybe boundaries don't really matter. Do you know who would be next to take a chunk just of Ukraine alone would be Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, who, as you know, lately has been in the media because he's apparently told (laughs) President Trump that Ukraine stinks, for lack of a more succinct way of putting it. You know, he's trying to dirty up Ukraine, too, because he's got a Hungarian minority in Western Ukraine. And the nationalism issue, this issue of the Hungarian minorities who live in countries bordering Hungary, it's essentially territory they lost in World War One, is one that he uses to drum up followers inside Hungary. It's very dangerous to change borders because guess what happens? War. We don't really need a second world, a third, sorry, a third world war. I was going to say a second world war, too. Anyway, um, and that would really be the consequence. The minute you start changing the rules, obviously everyone else is going to say, oh, well, there are no more rules against taking parts of your neighbor's territory if they, if you can say that your ethnic brethren live there or if you used to own it like back in history, okay, then it's a free-for-all. I mean, it's not that hard to see how that could happen. And many people are old enough to remember when that happened. Even Donald Trump should have some memory, at least through his father and his grandfather. So, it's ridiculous how reckless the president is in in this renegade operation that he unleashed with Giuliani. Well, reckless is one word for it. It's it's hard for me to even know what the right adjective would be to try to de- get at the motivation here. But the thing that I think is interesting that has really been coming out of the testimony is that when you're trying to understand how Donald Trump had all these people engaged in what really seems like a cockamamie scheme – the calculation the various civil servants were making from people who seem reasonably unimpeachable like Bill Taylor to people who seem a little bit more bizarre like Gordon Sondland was that everybody seemed to be telling themselves outside of the Giuliani Trump axis that it was worth it to indulge the president's weird scheme with Ukraine because on the other side, if you if you got him what he wanted – um, then he would give Ukraine this military aid, and the military aid was really important. And so the leveraging of an important U.S. foreign policy objective as a way to force the bureaucracy to uh, enter into a corrupt scheme for President Trump's reelection, that's a very big part of this and kind of separate even from the the scheme itself. I think a very dangerous way to know that the president is treating um, American policy objectives. Right. I mean, I would say at the macro level, what all of them understood was that Giuliani was impeding a positive U.S.-Ukraine relationship. So leaving aside the military assistance component of it, only because not all of the bureaucrats were aware that the halt in the military assistance was because of 
Trump's actions, I think. I don't know. We'll, we'll find that out. I don't know about Sondland, but I, I certainly the ones that I know. So Volker and Hill and, you know, Kurt Volker, Fiona Hill, Bill Taylor, uh, George Kent, all these folks, they all wanted a better U.S.-Ukrainian relationship, right? I don't know what they rationalized, but clearly they thought they could safely indulge the president and come out on the other side without harming Ukraine. Or the United States. It seems to me also their thinking was the opposite, that if they didn't indulge the president, they would harm Ukraine. And that is a very interesting and scary idea. But you may well be right um, that the president, if he was not indulged, would take worse actions vis-a-vis Ukraine that, r- that right now, even to this day in public, he's saying, of course, we support Ukraine. And, you know, he's making nice with Zelensky, although he's saying very unconstructive things like, why don't you guys just get along, you know, work out your problem as if the U.S. has no stake in whether Russia controls Ukraine or not, which is exactly wrong. You know, we are we didn't we we should not be hands off. We should help Ukraine, you know, stand alone and be independent and forge its own destiny. We should not be aiding the Kremlin by doing nothing. This week on Capitol Hill, another batch of Trump administration witnesses corroborating the president's walk across what might possibly finally be a bridge too far. The ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, now tells lawmakers that the Trump administration held up military aid as it pushed Ukraine's government to investigate Democrats, including the Biden family. Meanwhile, Trump allies continue to make the congressional inquiry not about Trump's abuse of power, but about supposed corruption by Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter. What you have now is you have the beginnings and the building of evidence, of circumstantial evidence that there was a crime here. So if we want to investigate Rudy Giuliani's financial dealings, by all means do it. But at the same time, you should, if you want to be fair, investigate Hunter Biden's uh, economic dealings in the Ukraine as well. That was Senator Rand Paul mentioning Rudolf Giuliani, the architect of the teetering Ukrainian conspiracy theory. The goal of which was to turn attention from Russian interference in the 2016 election to suspicions of Ukrainian interference and Obama administration corruption. Not Trump abusing power to smear a political rival, but a sinister Biden connection. Now, you may wonder, where did this all come from? Well, when the history of the Trump presidency is written, along with the likes of James Comey and Stormy Daniels, there will be one less familiar name, John Solomon, until recently a writer and executive at the publication The Hill. In March of this year, Solomon scored an exclusive interview with Ukraine's then top cop, Yuri Lutsenko. And even though a State Department official testified under oath that the interview was, quote, primarily non-truths and non-sequiturs, Solomon milked it for a series of articles describing how an official of the Ukrainian anti-corruption agency, called NABU, interfered in the 2016 election. Not the Russians, the Ukrainians, not to damage Hillary Clinton's campaign, but Trump's. Here's Lutsenko in a taped interview for The Hills TV show. Uh, Yes, according to the Member of Parliament, 
of Ukraine, uh, he got the court decision that the NABU official conducted an illegal intrusion into American uh, election campaign. Beyond that convenient counter-narrative to the then-still-going-on investigation into Russian election interference, Lutsenko also accused then-U.S. Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch of providing the Ukrainian prosecutor with a do-not-prosecute list. And uh, my response was that it's, it is inadmissible. Nobody in this country... Neither our president, nor our parliament, nor ambassador could stop, stop me from prosecuting whether there is a crime. And then came what Solomon called, quote, Joe Biden's 2020 Ukrainian nightmare, a right-wing blockbuster. Creepy, crazy Uncle Joe. Now, while his creepy behavior is grabbing most of the headlines, a possible international corruption scandal is brewing under the surface. Weeks before the Biden presidential campaign officially launched, the anti-Biden conspiracy was underway. There was just one problem. It wasn't true. Yes, that is a problem because Lutsenko, a few weeks later, says that the things he told John Solomon didn't happen that way. Paul Fari is a media reporter at The Washington Post. It turns out that Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch never handed over any list. And after telling Solomon that he would investigate, the company that Hunter Biden sat on the board of said later on that there really wasn't any evidence to investigate and that he dropped this whole notion. Once the story broke, Giuliani started peddling it everywhere until it eventually got Traction. Documents include a package of disinformation and debunked conspiracy theories. According to a source, Giuliani gave the documents to the White House and they were passed on to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Not just Giuliani, but the president of the United States. It sounds like big stuff. It sounds like uh, very interesting with Ukraine. His son, uh, Sean Hannity. All right, here with a full report. The Hill's John Solomon, also former U.S. attorney. So this creates a whole feedback loop, which we are still seeing to this day. Now, that sounds awfully familiar. Back in the run-up to the Iraq War, you'll recall Dick Cheney saying this. There's a story in the New York Times this morning, um, it's now public, that in fact he has been seeking to acquire and we have been able to intercept and prevent him from acquiring the kinds of tubes that are necessary to build a centrifuge. And the centrifuge is required to take low-grade uranium and, and enhance it into highly enriched uranium. But the source of the information was administration ally Ahmed Chalabi whose supposed aluminum tube smoking gun had already been deemed false within the CIA. So the administration and Chalabi essentially laundered the lie through the New York Times. Is that same laundering process uh, what's happening here? Well, in in some sense, yes. Um, and what you're pointing to is how reporters, journalists become captive of their sources and can further the narrative of their sources. Now, reporting is about getting a variety of opinions. It's not about getting one opinion. You go down a dangerous road when you rely on 
just partisans or just a single source to tell a rather important story. And it seems that this is the case with John Solomon's reporting in The Hill that Rudy Giuliani, Lev Parnas, and some Ukrainians who were their allies uh, were the source of his stories. What we're seeing now with Ukraine grew organically and seamlessly out of the Mueller investigation. And you don't have to trust me. The person who really says this most loudly is Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani joins us by phone for the program today. The president's personal attorney. Mr. Giuliani, how are you, sir? I'm really good, Glenn. How are you? I'm good. I'm good who has spent quite a lot of his very frequent media appearances talking about how he started working on Ukraine because he saw it as a way to defend President Trump against the Mueller investigation. So I knew they were hot and heavy on this Russian collusion thing, even though I knew 100 percent it was false. So Rudy Giuliani has actually said this publicly? Yeah, repeatedly. He talks all about how uh, he started meeting with these prosecutors, not to try to help President Trump's 2020 reelection effort, which gets a lot of discussion these days, but as a defense attorney trying to defend Trump against Mueller. I said to myself, hallelujah, I now have what a defense lawyer always wants. I can go prove somebody else committed this crime. He talks about how he first got wind of this Ukraine idea in November of 2018 and how that was, in his words, a very important moment for the Mueller investigation. You know, you had to kind of put yourself back in the mindset of a year ago. At that time, no one knew what Mueller was going to find. He was about to indict Roger Stone. He had Paul Manafort cooperating, uh, and he was really pressing him to explain why he was interacting with Russians during the campaign. And Rudy Giuliani says that he came up with this legal defense. Hallelujah, he says. I can prove someone else did it. And the someone else is the Ukrainians, and the did it is interfering in the 2016 election. So when I got this evidence about Ukrainian collusion, in which they mentioned that Joe Biden was involved in developing some of the collusion, I jumped on it. And I started to find people in Ukraine that were willing to come over and to talk to me about it. How, in the middle of the Russia investigation, did Giuliani come up with this idea specifically about Ukraine, that it wasn't Russia that was interfering in the election, that it was actually Ukrainians? Well, Giuliani has said that he was approached by an investigator in November 2018 who proposed this idea that it all was coming out of Ukraine, that people in Ukraine were trying to set up Paul Manafort uh, in 2016 when they uh, started talking about what he'd been doing as a political consultant in that country. And that's why Paul Manafort ultimately was fired from the Trump campaign. And then there are these sort of offshoots, including this theory that uh, – President Trump actually said on the telephone to the Ukrainian president in July about CrowdStrike, the company that was hired by the Democratic National Committee to look into the hack, which was the first company that said that they believed that Russian operatives were behind it. The CrowdStrike thing, we hear it coming up over and over again during impeachment hearings. We've heard the president talk about it. And honestly, I still remain confused as to what the CrowdStrike conspiracy theory is all about. 
Well, it's really confusing because it's so uh, uh, not based in fact. It's very interesting. They have the server, right, from the DNC, Democratic National Committee. Who has the server? The FBI went in and they told him, get out of here. You're not kidding. We're not giving it to you. They gave the server to CrowdStrike or whatever it's called, which is a country, which is a company owned by a very wealthy Ukrainian. So let me first tell you, like, what CrowdStrike actually is. Uh, It's an American company. It was founded by a guy who was born in Russia and another guy who was born in the U.S. And it was hired by the Democratic National Committee in the spring of 2016 when they suspected that their servers had been hacked to look into what had gone on. So it's kind of like a cybersecurity firm. It's a cybersecurity firm, exactly. And it was the first company that, uh, based on its forensic analysis, came out with uh, the finding that they believe that the DNC had been hacked by Russian operatives. Uh, Their work has been fully reviewed by the U.S. government. That is also the finding of the U.S. government. Uh, The Democratic Party servers were hacked by Russian operatives. There are 12 Russian military intelligence officers who have been indicted uh, for actually participating in that hack. That's what our government has said happened. The conspiracy theory is that somehow CrowdStrike is actually a Ukrainian company, that the guy who was born in Russia was actually born in Ukraine, that all the analysis they did was somehow faked and was intended to like frame Russia for what Ukraine had actually done, and that they actually sent the server itself, uh, the Democratic Party server, to Ukraine so that somewhere it's still there and could be recovered and would prove that Russia didn't hack the DNC. And I still want to see that server. You know, the FBI has never gotten that server. That's a big part of this whole thing. Why did they give it to a Ukrainian company? Are you sure they did that? Are you sure they gave it to Ukraine? Well, that's what the word is. This is ridiculous. It is just ridiculous. And in fact, the president, um, we know, uh, was told by his own staff that it was ridiculous. At this point, I am deeply frustrated with what he and the legal team is doing and repeating that debunked theory to the president. Tom Bossert, the former Homeland Security advisor, has said in interviews that it's completely debunked and that it was frustrating to him as an official because it sticks in his mind when he hears it over and over again. And for clarity here, George, let me just again repeat that it has no validity. And that in the heat of the Russia investigation, Rudy Giuliani turns to this and he's like, aha, this is the thing that we should be paying attention to. This and other variations of the sort of theory that Ukraine in some way interfered, that they tried to take down Paul Manafort to hurt Donald Trump, that people in the Ukrainian embassy in Washington fed information about Paul Manafort to the DNC. There's various versions of this, but when you get to the heart of it, it always comes down to sort of a defense through distraction. The idea is that, you know, you think that Russia interfered to help Trump. Actually, it was Russia's foe, Ukraine, and they interfered to help Hillary. And through this process, this is how Giuliani comes to believe that it's not just the CrowdStrike conspiracy theory that is worth being looked at more, but also general corruption in Ukraine and Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son and his involvement in a Ukrainian energy company. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, there's general dirtiness there and the dirtiness involves Ukraine and it involves Democrats and that that's what we should really be talking about. And if the Democrats weren't obsessed with trying to take down Trump through Russia, that is what we would be talking about. 
called the full Trump-Ukraine timeline, but it really starts almost three years before Trump becomes president. Your first entry is February 22nd. 2014, when the pro-Russia president, Viktor Yanukovych, is ousted during a popular uprising against him, and he flees to Russia. Why start there? That's a great question, because it actually does go well before that, as, as I'm sure probably most listeners know. We decided to start at that point, because that was really the trigger point for most of the tension between Russia and the U.S. It, it was it was a, a pro-Russian uh, leader in Ukraine who was ousted by out of popular demand, uh, and that really started the tension between those two countries, which I think informed a lot of what followed. Your timeline notes that Yanukovych had come to power with the help of Paul Manafort, right. who would go on to be Trump's campaign chairman. Why did Paul Manafort, an American political consultant, want to help the guy who was helping Russia expand its influence by dominating Ukraine? Because they gave him money to do that. Paul Manafort was never one who was putting ethics before profits. Uh, he worked over for a long period of time with a number of people of questionable repute, including in the Philippines and in other places. Uh, and he was very involved in what was called the Party of Regions, which was Yanukovych's political party, helped him get into that position, which then later on, I don't want to you know, give any spoilers here, but we'll come back to burn him and be involved in all this in the future. And the next month, March 2014, a month after Manafort's client Yanukovych is forced out, Russia isn't having this new resistance to it, and that's when it invades the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea and annexes it, such a pivotal event, just takes it back as part of Russia, March 2014. Two months later, May 13th, 2014, Hunter Biden joins the board of Burisma, owned by Mykola Zlochevsky, one of several subjects of a Ukrainian corruption probe. Can you tell us more about that? Why did Hunter Biden, son of the sitting vice president at that time, 2014, join Burisma's board? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know that I've heard a really detailed response from him on that. I think that his motivation was probably not unlike Paul Manafort's, which is that they were paying him money to do that. He was in the business of, of, of providing advisory services to companies. Uh, and my guess is that was probably a primary motivator. And now here comes something related to that that I think we're very likely to hear about on day one of the public hearings on Wednesday, early 2015 now. And one of the witnesses who will testify on Wednesday, State Department official George Kent, raises concerns about Hunter Biden's work with Burisma. But Joe Biden's office turns him away, as you put it. Can you elaborate on what George Kent's concern was about Hunter Biden being on that board and what he says the interaction with Joe Biden's office was like? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there were obvious reasons, and this actually came up later uh, during President Obama's actual administration. There are obvious reasons to be concerned about Hunter Biden's involvement with this company and his involvement with Ukrainian power more broadly. Uh, Kent says that he he raised this issue with Biden's office. This was at the time when Bo Biden, uh, Joe Biden's other son, uh, was dying of brain cancer. Uh, and so he was told, essentially, look, I, we don't have time to worry about Hunter Biden right now where the, the vice president's focused on Bo Biden. Uh, but the impression that one gets from Kent in particular is that he, he was not particularly satisfied with the response that he got in terms of his concerns about that possible conflict. So I guess we'll hear Republicans question him about that on Wednesday. But the next four entries on your timeline are about people wanting Ukraine's chief prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, fired for not investigating corruption. And these seem to establish that the way the Trump people are trying to portray Joe Biden's role in getting that Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, fired at the time is totally misleading. September 24th, 2015, 
Jeffrey Pyatt, then U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, blasts Shokin in a speech in Odessa, Ukraine. He points to a glaring problem that threatens the good work regional leaders are doing, the failure of the institution of the prosecutor general of Ukraine to successfully fight internal corruption. Then October 8th, Assistant U.S. Secretary of State Victoria Nuland testifies to the Senate that Shokin's office has to be reinvented as an institution that serves the citizens of Ukraine rather than ripping them off. That's a quote. Then December 8th. 2015. In Kiev, Biden tells Ukrainian leaders to fire Shokin or lose more than a billion dollars in loan guarantees. That's what the Republicans are calling Biden's quid pro quo. But for context, as you point out, Biden joins many Western leaders in urging Shokin's ouster. And as a further example of that, a few months later, February 10th, 2016, the International Monetary Fund threatens to halt a bailout program for Ukraine unless the country addresses its issues, which includes firing Viktor Shokin. Right. So the point there, very important point, is there's over ev- overwhelming evidence that Viktor Shokin was not fired as a way to ease up on Hunter Biden. The whole right. Western world wanted him fired right. because he wasn't investigating corruption in Ukraine. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the idea from Republicans is that Shokin was going hard against Burisma and therefore Joe Biden wanted to crack down. I mean, it's in fact, the opposite is the case, is that Shokin wasn't cracking down on corruption, that Burisma, there's not evidence uh, beyond from Shokin himself, who obviously is not a reliable narrator here. There's not evidence that Burisma was actually under investigation at the time that he, uh, that Shokin was fired. Shokin was essentially, according to all of these various people, falling down on the job and not actually tackling the systemic problem that had Americans concerned. Americans were concerned at that time legitimately about how much much do we support Ukraine when Ukraine is is a corrupt political institution? Shokin being there was seen as an obstacle to real reform. And that is why all of these leaders, including at that time, Joe Biden, were focused on him and his removal. And then on March 29th, 2016, Shokin is finally fired in the weeks after the International Monetary Fund threatened to halt the bailout program. So maybe it had nothing to do with Joe Biden or the U.S. Secretary of State or the U.S.-Ukraine ambassador, but it was when the IMF said they're going to withhold the green uh, that they finally fired Viktor Shokin. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that there were probably – there was a culmination of a lot of different pressures that Ukraine was feeling at that point in time. January 12th, 2017, Trump is already elected. It's eight days before he's sworn in. And Ukraine closes its investigation of Burisma, though the new chief prosecutor, Lutsenko, says one sale of an oil storage terminal will still be investigated. Do you know basically what they found ultimately in the investigation of Burisma corruption? I don't. And it's interesting because this is actually Burisma saying at that point in time, all of these things have been closed. So we're not really sure on when they were hmm. actually closed okay. out. Because again, remember, the, the idea is that in the late 2015, early 2016 timeframe, when Shokin was being targeted, Burisma wasn't apparently under investigation. So this was this may have been something that emerged after that under the new president, Petroshenko, who of course is not currently the president. So it's not really clear what actually happened with the Burisma thing. That's part of one of the mysteries here. And part of that too stems from the fact that Ukraine's politics are a little murky. And that date is interesting in part, as I think you were suggesting in that answer, the investigation of Burisma was not closed when Joe Biden was president, suggesting some kind of pressure to save Hunter Biden from anything that they may have acted on, only after Biden was leaving. So that helps establish that there's no evidence for that. However, let's jump ahead to something in your timeline that perhaps could help 
Trump's defense. January 11th, 2017, or I guess we're, we're really jumping back one day, so it's the same week, January 11th, 2017, just before Trump is inaugurated, Politico reports that Ukrainian officials, quote, helped Clinton's allies research damaging information on Trump and his advisors during the campaign, unquote. Now, Philip, it seems to me this could become central to a Trump defense that getting campaign help from a foreign country is more common than the press and the Democrats are making it seem. And oh, by the way, both parties do it and both parties right. did it in 2016. But how much was that political angle proven? Right. No, it's a great, it's a great point. And I think it's important to remember January 2017, the media was obsessed over what we were just then learning about Russia's role interfering in the 2016 election, you know, two months prior the election actually occurred. So we were just starting to learn that the CIA and the FBI were concerned about what Russia had done. And so Politico comes out and says, Hey, we've uncovered this, this Ukrainian thread too. The big difference is the scale of the efforts, right? The Ukraine effort, there was a woman who worked as a consultant for the Democratic National Committee who has subsequently been called as a potential witness by Republicans in this House inquiry. Uh, but she was essentially trying to dig up. She went to the Ukrainian embassy and said, hey, what do you got on Manafort? Because, again, as I said, people were really focused on, look, there's got to be something we can find on Paul Manafort given his history. Uh, so that's one of the really central parts of this political piece is a woman from the DNC went to the Ukrainian embassy and asked them for help on Manafort. That's very very, very different than both the scale of what happened with Russia in 2016 and who was actually leading the effort. I mean, that was, according to reports, driven by Vladimir Putin himself saying, let's focus on this in 2016. So it's very different. But you're exactly right. Donald Trump and his allies are very much, you know, they're, they're very prone to sort of whataboutism. And they have, they have lifted up this article repeatedly as an example of Ukraine being a bad actor as well or equivalently. Ahead three months now to April 21st, 2017. So Trump is in office for a few months. And he, for the first time, tweets this conspiracy theory that Russia didn't hack the DNC and release all those emails damaging to Hillary Clinton in the final weeks of the campaign. It was actually Ukraine that hacked the DNC, and they did it not to help Trump, but to help Clinton. And now this is widely called a debunked conspiracy right. theory by now, we should say. Right. But what was the theory even based on? How could dropping sure. all those bad for Hillary emails be a way to help her win the election? So, again, keep in mind that what Donald Trump is trying to do at this point, this is he's very concerned about the Russian investigation at this point. April 2017, right before he fires James Comey, he'd been asking James Comey behind the scenes, according to Comey, hey, you lift this cloud. I've got Russia hanging over my head. So what Donald Trump's trying to do here is distract. During the 2016 campaign, Shortly after, there's this conspiracy theory that emerged and that the, the, the link goes, the first analysis of the DNC server was done by a company called Cloudflare. A guy who uh, helped co-found Cloudflare sits on the board of this nonprofit organization. That nonprofit organization receives some funding from a Ukrainian oligarch. That's the tie that is that is, is the ostensible link between Ukraine and the server. It is it's you know, calling it debunked is generous. It's nonsensical in a lot of ways. It is also the focus of what would later be. Trump's first ask to President Zelensky. Just for the record, Cloudfair or I think I've heard CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike, yes. CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike, yes. Not to disparage a company unfairly. Yes. CrowdStrike yes, is CrowdStrike. the name of yes, that company. You. May 2nd, 2018. Now we get into last year. Ukraine stops cooperating with Robert Mueller in the Russia investigation. Then May 4th, two days later, three Democratic senators, Durbin, Leahy, and Menendez, Right to Ukraine's prosecutor, Litsenko, to ask him to reconsider. Now, Philip Trump supporters will ask, 
Why was a foreign country cooperating with the Mueller investigation into a U.S. political scandal? And is that any different from what Trump is asking Ukraine to do with investigating their theory of 2016 election interference on the other side? Right. And I think that's a fair question. I think it's important to note that this the New York Times reported that Ukraine had had been reticent to help the Mueller probe, recognizing how President Trump felt about the Mueller probe. And so they were sort of making a, a geopolitical decision. Do we go out of our way to anger Donald Trump by helping with this thing? This was a probe that was sanctioned by Donald Trump's own Justice Department. This was a special counsel that was appointed by, you know, the, the uh, deputy attorney general is a very different thing than Donald Trump sort of speculatively saying, hey, maybe there's something on Joe. Biden, if you could find something, dig something up, or at least make an announcement about it, that would be helpful. And based on what we discussed before, maybe the difference is the Mueller investigation was real. The whole intelligence community concluded Russia hacked the DNC and Mueller actually indicted a dozen individual Russians with mountains of evidence, while the theory that it was really Ukraine was only ever a political trick, a fabrication made up to cast doubt on the Russia investigation to help save Trump. So, of course, Ukraine would help with one and not help with another. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think part of what we're seeing in the most recent testimony is Ukraine found itself in the same geopolitical bind once Trump started making those asks. But it certainly was rational for Ukraine to have a response of, okay, this is a legitimate investigation versus this is something that is the will of the president. I want you to hear Louisiana Senator, uh, Republican John Kennedy, uh, on Meet the Press yesterday. Um, I think both Russia and Ukraine meddled in the 2016 election. Uh, I think it's been well documented in the Financial Times, in Politico, in The Economist, in The Washington Examiner, even on CBS, that the uh, Prime Minister of Ukraine, the Interior Minister, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, the head of the Ukrainian uh, Mm -hmm. um, anti-corruption league, uh, all meddled in the election on social media and otherwise. They worked with a DNC operative. Shane, what is this? (laughs) Seriously, explain this to us. Yeah, we should start by saying almost everything Senator Kennedy said is not true. Uh, and, uh, and what this comes from is this persistent belief, as you put it, David, that Ukraine somehow, in coordination with Democrats, engaged in interference in the election that is analogous to what Russia did, which, of course, all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies say was a coordinated effort directed by the president of Russia. The sort of germs of truth, if we can kind of disaggregate them from what Senator Kennedy is saying, are these. Uh, it is the case that in 2016, Ukraine officials disclosed information about payments that were made by the previous Ukrainian government to Paul Manafort, uh, who, of course, was Donald Trump's campaign chairman. There are those who allege, and there was a court finding in Ukraine, that that amounted to election interference because it was releasing information that was not supposed to be made public under Ukrainian law that had the effect of damaging Trump's campaign. Putting aside for the moment that a Ukrainian court later overruled that and found that there was not any kind of election meddling, um, that doesn't even come close to what the U.S. intelligence community 
his document about what Russia did. Uh, Senator Kennedy cited a lot of articles. I'm not familiar with an article that appeared in the Financial Times. I don't know about these other ones. There has been reporting in Politico that speaks to this idea uh, that the Ukrainian embassy and officials there in Washington were working with a freelance researcher for the DNC and feeding this person information about Paul Manafort that also then found its way to journalists. Um, there are a lot of credibility problems with one of the key sources for that article. Um, but again, this is not something that that rises to the level of what we are talking about with Russia. And importantly, Fiona Hill, who was President Trump's lead Russia expert on the National Security Council, recently testified, and my reporting and reporting in the New York Times has confirmed this, that there is intelligence reporting from our agencies that is available to Senator Kennedy and other members of Congress documenting the intelligence community's assessment that this Ukraine did it story is actually a Russian fiction that is being peddled and quite successfully, it would appear, pushed out uh, into the American political bloodstream. Let me read Hillary Clinton's tweet on that point today. Uh, she tweeted this morning, Senator Kennedy, why are you parroting Russian propaganda that U.S. intelligence officials tell us are designed to divide our country? Did you miss the briefing that day? So U.S. intel officials have briefed that this is a Russian plan. That's right. And Senator Kenny was asked about this during the, the interview segment that we just heard. And he said, well, I didn't get the briefing. Now, what he didn't say, I didn't take the briefing or I was told not to take the briefing. The point is, though, the briefing is available to him and there is information that he can go read. This is not like a one time only deal. And if you missed it, you don't get what the intelligence community says about Ukraine. So he is I think you could probably accuse him of. Uh, at the least, willful ignorance here, because there is ample information that would not only counter what he's saying, but would underscore the degree to which Senator Kennedy is actively participating, according to the U.S. intelligence community's assessment, in a Russian propaganda campaign. But he has now, you know, we talked about this last week when he made the claim, he retreated from the claim, he's now back to the claim. So we're several 180s into going full circle to him again embracing this idea, it's like it, you know, I feel like we sound like broken records because we keep explaining the same thing over and over and over again in the same way, but there are different riffs on it coming from people like Senator Kennedy. Right. And I think that you have to ask the question, what is this designed to do? Exactly. Right. And I think that you could, you know, safely, you know, infer here that what the senator is trying to do is distract from the allegations, obviously, at the center of the impeachment about the President Trump and, and, and Ukraine, but also by saying that Ukraine engaged in some kind Kind of activity that was analogous to what Russia did, it has the effect of minimizing what the Russians did and somehow saying, well, everyone does it. It's not that big of a deal. And then distances not only Donald Trump from the Ukraine matter, but of course, has the effect, I think, of distancing him from the Russia investigation as well and kind of putting that all behind us, too. And, and importantly, as well, what he's doing here, I think it should be underscored, is he, he's not only counteract, you know, counteracting what the intelligence community has been trying to tell members of Congress, but he is creating doubt in the American public about what really happened. We talked earlier in the podcast, you know, the facts are not at issue here, right? 
there's a transcript or a, a quasi transcript if you want to think about it the way that the White House put out. No one disagrees that the aid was withheld. All the facts are in evidence. But what this kind of conspiracy talk about Ukraine does is distracts people from those facts and makes them very confused, I think, and makes it hard for the American people to know what is true and what is false. So and I just want to clear something up. When the 17 intel agencies uh, initially put out that warning about Russian interference or when the intel chiefs went to go brief President-elect Trump, was there any, to our knowledge, any of your reporting suggests that Ukraine was part of that at all? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No. And and, and quite the opposite. This was very focused on Russia. And then subsequent to that, there has been intelligence investigations of this issue of Russia concocting the Ukraine plot and pushing it out in order to deflect from the earlier finding by the U.S. intelligence community that Russia interfered in our elections. It's interesting. You know, they're all so interrelated. The, you know, original uh, element of Russian election meddling sort of spoiled and this was Trump's whole, you know, fear when he came into office that it would essentially spoil his presidency. But it's his effort to undermine everyone's understanding of that that ultimately has come back around to lead to him being impeached. And so it's it's like it it, it was tainted certainly by this by by what happened. But then it was his reaction to it ultimately that kind of put it on steroids. We've just heard clips today, starting with Impeachment Explained, speaking with Evelyn Farkas in two parts about the geopolitical history of Ukraine since 2014. Rubicon discussed the intersection between corruption in Russia and Ukraine and Trump's vulnerability to being influenced. On the Media explained the origin of the Ukraine corruption conspiracy theory. The Washington Post looked more specifically at Rudy Giuliani's role in promoting the Ukraine conspiracy theory. The Brian Lehrer Show went through a long and detailed timeline of the Trump-Ukraine scandal. And finally, we just heard the Daily DC Impeachment Watch discuss how Republicans are continuing to propagate the conspiracy theory purposefully designed to divide the country. Now, one last cap to this whole story. The Justice Department Inspector General's report on the origins and management of the Trump-Russia investigation was just released, and Bill Barr wasted no time outright falsifying the conclusions. So here's one quick bonus clip from the Daily DC Impeachment Watch on that topic. FBI Director Ray uh, sat down with uh, ABC News's Pierre Thomas, and this was an interview after the Inspector General's report came out of the Department of Justice that basically blew apart, you know, two and a half years worth of Donald Trump telling us uh, everything about the Russia investigation was a hoax and it was completely flawed. This IG report basically said that while there may have been some problems about FISA applications, uh there there was no politics at play and it was not at all inappropriate. It was totally appropriate for the FBI to begin the investigation into uh, potential Russian interference uh, and in aiding the Trump campaign and trying to harm Hillary Clinton's chances. I'm going to put Attorney General Barr aside, who's 
completely uh, Donald Trump henchman in this for just a moment. Uh, the FBI director, Chris Ray, who now may be in very hot water with the president. I want you to hear what he said specifically about the issue of Ukraine interference in 2016, which is something that the president and his allies still try to sell every day. Here he is. We have no information that indicates that Ukraine interfered with the 2016 presidential election. When you see politicians pushing this notion, are you concerned about that in terms of its impact on the American public? Well, look, there's all kinds of people saying all kinds of things out there. Uh, I think it's important for the American people to be thoughtful consumers of information and uh, to think about the sources of it. All kinds of people saying all kinds of things out there. He's referring to the gentleman who sits in the Oval Office. Exactly. And it's referring to his defenders as well, who keep repeating these really completely unfounded, baseless allegations. Uh, Michael Horowitz, I worked with him at the Justice Department. Very thorough. That's the inspector general. Inspector general, right. Very thorough report. And following the tradition of when the IG looks at something, they tend to find some mistakes. So it's even-handed. Uh, they definitely uncovered some errors that they're critical of the FBI about. But to me, the biggest takeaway... And I should just add, sorry, yeah. that Ray said he's going to look at and implement different policies and procedures to try to fix those. Exactly. Yeah. As exactly he should do. The biggest takeaway to me is this really should be the final nail in the coffin as to these ridiculous theories that have no basis in fact whatsoever. The idea that it was the Ukraine was the idea that, you know, something else that people come up with. Here is an actual report that was done with a very, very thorough investigation, and it should put that to rest. So are you saying that the bar ordered Durham report to come should not be considered at all, that that's a invalid investigation of sorts? I think before Durham's statement about his report, which was really, as a former federal prosecutor, it's very odd that he would make this statement. Before that, it's he has an a, ongoing investigation. It's an ongoing right. investigation. I mean, you, you wouldn't be talking about it. And before he said that... And there was no proof. Sorry, right, there's no proof. Right. He also <laughs> didn't... He, he said, yeah, we don't agree with that. But he didn't say, and here's why. Right. He just said... We don't agree. Exactly. And I mean, my concern now is that, uh, you know, he's been keeping company too close to bar. I mean, it's very heady stuff to be flying around the world with the attorney general doing the investigation with him. And that's really cast, cast a lot of doubt in my mind on the integrity of his investigation. But, you know, we'll wait to see what he comes out with. An amazing thing. Just an amazing thing to watch uh, the attorney general, uh, the president uh, take an independent inspector general report. Uh, and, and just completely uh, deny the reality of what was uh, presented. So I don't think it's the final nail in the coffin, as you as right. you suggested. <laughs> now, that'll wrap up this angle of the impeachment story for now. Next week is the final week of programming for the show for the rest of the year. And we're going to be diving into other angles of impeachment. So for now, let me just remind you that uh, we are facing a fiscal cliff at the end of the year. We've been running a membership drive on Patreon, uh, trying to uh, get enough people to pledge as little as a couple of bucks a month to soften the blow of that fiscal cliff when we ultimately decide to not go to the dark side and start tracking your every movement and internet history and habit to better advertise to you. Uh, when we don't do that, we will be losing some advertising dollars. Everyone who has been signing up at patreon.com slash bestofleft has been 
helping to subvert the goals of the advertising system and will be integral to keeping the show going for the foreseeable future. So if, if you like this show, think we bring some value to your life and you want to support the work we do, uh, please sign up at patreon.com slash best of left to get started. And as I said, every little bit helps. So even if it can only be a couple of bucks a month, we appreciate it entirely. And if you sign up now, you won't even be billed until January 1st. So that is going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in, as always, at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives more now than ever. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now for everyone's favorite, a little bit of news by Limerick. And here is just a nice capper to the story we just heard about Bill Barr and the IG report. At Limerick's writes, The Prez's protector, Bill Barr, knows truth will not carry him far, and therefore his goals convincing the proles that facts really aren't what they are. <laughs>